May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, By the time you gain wisdom in life, it's almost too late to use it. There should be more amens for that. A few years ago, I had a conversation with one of my boys who will remain nameless. He asked me why I wasn't consistent in the application of discipline. He accused me of being unfair in the treatment of himself by comparison to his brothers. In other words, he thought maybe I was being a little bit too lenient with his younger siblings, and so I took the time to enlighten him. I shared with him that I had indeed addressed the issue, but in a different way than I might have addressed it with him. And then he said, well, why? That's not fair. Well, and I responded by this way, and it was one of those rare parenting moments when I actually had something good to say in return. And I responded, I said, you know, when kids are born, they're each different, and they don't come with a user manual. You've got to figure it out as you go. And he looked at me, and he chuckled, and he said, that's a good one, Dad. I was like, wow, I've arrived. (laughs) Now, those conversations, I would have to tell you, to be honest, are few and far between. However, they come every once in a while just to give you encouragement, right? But I, I, I think it's really important that we recognize that by the time you get to the latter stages of parenting, you've finally figured a few things out. And as I said, it's almost too late to use them. And you learn them through the school of hard knocks. You learn them as you you walk with your children and you, as a parent, kind of suffer through the process of learning how to parent. But it ought not always be this way. We, we should be able to benefit from those who have gone before us. We should have an openness to ask older Christians in our lives how, how it's done or take input from others. And we also have the Bible itself that can give us a way forward when we're having difficulties. And so, I think it's important that we recognize, though, that we often learn wisdom through distress, and we learn it through the grit of perseverance and pushing through. Now, it would be a sweet deal to learn it another way. I'm 45, and I know that we all, at various ages, learn through the stresses of life, and I think we can at times feel very resistant to those things, and that's why James says to count it all joy when you encounter diverse temptations or trials, because as you persevere through those, God will give to you what you need, and He will give you the wisdom if you ask for it. Now, Scripture is so full of wisdom, if we have ears to hear, we'll be able to pick up on it, and perhaps even save us a lot of heartache And we need to ask with an attitude of, I want to hear, I want this to be grafted into my soul. I'm willing to do whatever the Scriptures tell me to do. I'm not going to resist it. That's the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise this. They think that they can do it on their own. They, they, They then suffer through the acts of sin, and then they suffer, and, and then they become sojourners 
They feel ostracized, and, but yet they're invited to return. So as we're looking at this text, I want you to see Moses, who, who in his younger years acted very foolishly, and through his suffering and his sojourning, he learned how to shepherd and how to serve God's people. And the idea that I want to share from this text is that God prepares His people for service through suffering. I wish there was another way, but there is no other way, folks. If you pick up the cross and follow Him, learning the principles of self-denial and suffering are a part of the way you follow Christ. There is no other way. And so, God in His providence prepares Moses in the tried and true way of gaining wisdom, and that is through suffering. And so, I want us to look here at these two episodes that are put together, and I want to note on the offset that they occur in two different countries. They're ruled by two different men. One of these countries is underneath of the dominion of Pharaoh. The other is under the dominion of, we get this introduction, he's called the priest of Midian in verse 16. I want you to notice that there is two different realms, and Moses is successful in one realm of being a deliverer, but not so successful in the other realm. And the absence of the word deliverer in Egypt is significant because it shows up in Midian where he is successful. And through this contrast, we're learning that that through the suffering of his own foolishness, he has to run and he gets to a place where he's humbled and is in a place where he can learn principles that will prepare him for serving God to lead His people out of Egypt. So, let's look at these two, two, two scenarios, these two situations. Uh, the first is Exodus uh, 2, 11 to 15, where Moses fails as a deliverer in Egypt. Now, this is really the first introduction of Moses as a man. Uh, last Sunday, we saw him as the baby in the bulrushes. And then we do this big quantum leap forward into his young adult life, not that his child-rearing days were insignificant, but here is the, the moment where we clearly see God starting to lead Moses in a different direction. He had been delivered from the bulrushes and put into the palace, and now it's as if the palace needs to be taken out of him in order that he might properly serve the Lord. But yet what we see here is a little bit of his background and his character. We see Moses in verses 11 to 14 displaying what I would call promising leadership skills. There's a lot of promise here. And from a worldly perspective, we would say, this is the kind of leader that I would want to have go before me. First, Moses knew who he was. And he knew he was a Hebrew, he was not an Egyptian. He had a clear grasp of his personal identity, and he knew what he was about. 
He knew what he was going to do. He even understood God's providence in such a way that he was placed and equipped for a special purpose. Now, it's likely that Moses was very aware of his identity as a Hebrew due to the long-term nursing strategies of that day. Uh, We live in in a world in which accommodations have been made to get women out into the workforce quickly, and so formulas and such and everything and and weaning is a much tighter process here in America. Back then, three years on average was the length of time of nursing. And so by the time Moses is walking and talking, he's still nursing, he knows. He's starting to know who his real mom is and and who's not his real mom. And it seems as though the princess did not forbid this knowledge and awareness. Moses knew who his sister and his brother were. We knew that, uh, that the princess used a Hebrew name for Moses as well. So there doesn't seem to be an attempt to, to hide or to cover up this adoption. And I would say that knowing who you are and what you are about is a very essential feature of leadership. You don't want to follow an aimless person. You want to follow someone who knows where they're going. And this is Moses. He's equipped. He knows what he's about. His sense of personhood is not up for debate. And Pharaoh's daughter ensures that Moses is emotionally secure. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment because I think the topic of identity is such a critical issue these days. And I cannot imagine growing up in a day in which Paw Patrol introduces ambiguity as to gender. I have, we used a lot of educational children's programming. I don't know if we could even do that today. Everything is out to get our children. We have teachers at some times who will try to interfere with gender identification. Even parents leaving to their own children the intense pressure to figure out who they are. That's not helpful. And our culture, as it becomes more and more broken and tormented, we have many people who have lost total connection with who they are. We're an aimless. And as we've read in our Scripture readings this morning, God created man in His own image. And so we ought to have a very confident perspective of who we are. We are made in God's image as male and female. And one of the best things that you can do for your parents, if you you have a little boy or you have a little girl in your house, is to tell them how thankful you are that God has made them a little boy or a little girl. I think it's something that we would assume, but I think nowadays we need to explicitly tell our children how much we are thankful that God has made them male or female. It's because they were made in God's image. We need to let them know how wonderfully and fearfully they've been created. And so as you parent your children, take some wisdom from someone who has gone before you and take the time to commend the beauty of the gender that they have been given in their biology. Do that. The world is not going to do that for you. You need to do that, and I would encourage you to do so. There's a second quality of leadership here that... um, 
is remarkable to, to, to Moses' uh, his, his leadership skills. He was very excitable. He was a very young idealist. He was like, uh, he was ready to go to the front lines, if you will, and fight for justice. Uh, he could have chosen his to hide his national identity, and he could have tried to become more Egyptian, but he was trying to become more Hebrew and leverage his place in the palace to help his people. And as he went out, it says, it says in verse 11 that he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw what was going on, and it moved his heart to anger, and that anger moved him to act and to do something. We, d- we need people today in our leadership who are going to do something. And I'm thankful for those who t- stand up and say something and do something. I'm, I'm like everyone else. I want people to fight for that which is right and honoring to the Lord. But there is a way to go about it. And yet Moses had this tendency in his heart, and he unfortunately was more heat than light. Now, anger is a, it's a, it's a good energy but in the hands of sinful men, it, it never works the righteousness of God. Anger is the sensation that something's not right, and it has to be made right. But the problem is, as sinners, we tend to overcompensate, and we destroy people in the process of trying to correct things that are unjust. Now, he was an idealist young man, he was, but he was unfortunately not tempered with moderation, and so he struck down this Egyptian taskmaster and hit him in the sand. He really, in this case, doesn't have the authority to act. Who is the one who has dominion in this land? It's Pharaoh. He's ascribing to himself the authority of Pharaoh to do this, and he's foolish in his thinking. This is not appropriate for him to do. Now, finally, there's a third characteristic here that I find interestingly noted, that Moses Moses was physically strong. It was neither the taskmaster nor when he gets to Midian, these these shepherds who are bullying the women, they were no match for, for Moses. So what you see here is you see someone who's confident, who's strong, who takes initiative, he's assertive, he's got strength. However, he also has pride. And so we see this when Moses asserts himself here. His assertiveness is intercepted with a question. He asserts himself to bring justice to, to two Hebrews who are fighting, and he's rebuked, and he's asked, who made you a prince and a judge over us? What a great question. Who was it? Who did that? Who was it? Well, the New Testament actually gives us some insight. Stephen was a deacon in the New Testament church, and he preached a short sermon, and he said this in the midst of his sermon. He said that he, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And so I go back to that question. 
Who had made him a prince and a judge over them? Moses was aware that God had placed him in a special place. But the problem was his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. He was acting on his own as if he had authority to do this just because he lived in Pharaoh's house. He was acting as a son of Pharaoh rather than as a son of God. And there's a big difference between the two. You may have all of the correct motives to correct the world around you, but if you don't do it as the Son of God, your pride will fill your heart and cause you to collapse and fail. And so we see Moses having this, this remark, this, 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 this unique leadership capacity, but now we see Moses, he has an unwelcome retreat from his own foolishness. In verse 14, uh, we read at the end, it says, And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. Other people must know this. If it's common on the lips of the Hebrews, then I'm sure it's gotten up to the palace. And so Moses runs to Midian. He flees, and he, he knew he had a place in the palace, but yet he, in his actions he was foolish. And God is at work here now, working to remove the palace from Moses' heart. God had saved him from the bulrushes, but now God is going to remove the pride from his heart. See, God permitted Moses, like Abraham, to make decisions without consulting God first. We often will find to our shock and surprise that God doesn't step in and prevent us from being foolish. God lets us make mistakes, and also will even let us sin. He won't interfere at… T- it's a remarkable thing. The, the Christians might imagine that they might be instantly prevented, like the donkey that's going in and, 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 and starts to talk back to you, you know, like Balaam's donkey, you know, if I'm going down this path, God has got to step in the way and, like, make it so that I don't carry this out. Not so. Moses sins by taking his own hands, into his own hands, the responsibility to be a deliverer of God's people. Yet he was doing it under the authority of Pharaoh. He was doing it not according to God's Word. And so his sin causes him to suffer, to leave home so that one day he would be the kind of leader that God would use. This may be counterintuitive, but God does allow us to sin in order to suffer, in order to learn that we need to trust Him above all things. And so, by trying to solve the relational problem with His anger, He made life worse. God may allow you to have outbursts of anger in your own home in order that you might suffer to learn that that's not the way you should handle conflict in your own home. He wants you to learn that living your life according to God's principles is the way to peace. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence 
there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In our own vain imagination, we think that when we outburst in anger, that we will achieve the results that we hope to have in the life of another person. It never goes the way we think it will go. And we are taken into foolishness, and how much greater then, though, would be the path of life and having the presence of God's joy filling our relationship. How much better it would be if we simply would bite our tongue, wait for things to cool, and speak out of love and concern and sympathy, and hear God work and fill our souls with joy. There is a better way. And so often we have to learn the way that Moses learns, that walk acting on our own authority never works well. And so, Moses, tail between his legs, he's running off to Midian. And so, we see in verse 16 to 22, Moses here now finally succeeds. He, he wants to be a deliverer, but here he is successful as a deliverer. Verse 16, he says, and now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when the women came back, they said, an Egyptian delivered us today. He is successful. Now, I want to point out that in the story of Israel, there are, there are I, tropes, I guess, characteristics or features of their story that kind of get recycled several times. For example, barrenness. I talked about that last Sunday as a distinct characteristic in the background story of Israel. Barrenness is a feature of their history and unique births. Having birth stories are unique features of their history. But there is also another characteristic in Israel's history is that, very uniquely, they are a people of sojourners. Abraham traveled to Canaan. He never built a house. He was always in a tent. He was always moving. Isaac was probably the, the, the one that, for the most part, had a better chance of rooting himself, but famines came and moved him and displaced him from location. Jacob ran from his brother's wrath in, in, uh, and ran to his uncle Laban. And so, sojourning is a, a significant part of their story. And Moses here, like the third, first three patriarchs, is, is sojourning. Now, of the three patriarchs, Jacob's sojourning looks the most like Moses. Remember, Jacob ran from the wrath of his brother Esau because Jacob deceived his brother. Here, Moses, acting on his own authority, inherits the wrath of Pharaoh, and he's now running away as well. And it's remarkable how Moses 
in this case, becomes a successful deliverer, just as Jacob also became a deliverer. Jacob, if you remember that story, Jacob winds up at the well, the very well, of his uncle Laban, and Rachel comes out, and all the boys are standing around waiting for just the right guy to come along, apparently, to take the cover off of that well. Jacob shows up, he flexes his muscles, and lifts that rock off of the well. In this case, Moses comes, and he sees not just one shepherdess in distress, he sees seven, and he shows his muscles and scares those bullies away. Here he is, Moses is applying his masculinity to protect women in an appropriate way. Again, it's a, a remarkable trait of consistency in the story of Israel. Variations in rhyme, yes, a little bit of differences, but the same message is coming along. Moses in Egypt had been seeking to make himself a deliverer. Here, it's thrust upon him, and he uses his strength in an appropriate way that honors God, and it's from a position of humility and not of pride. He doesn't stand to gain anything from interjecting himself here at all. He's, he's like the outsider. Like, there's, there's nothing here that's going to benefit or gain advantage for him at all. In fact, as you read the story on, it's like the girls leave him at the well. Like, he did his job. He wasn't looking for anything. And now, his, their father has to say to the women, go back and get that guy that saved you. He really wasn't looking for anything. And I want to uh, just point out that in this case, Moses is demonstrating what it means to keep covenant with God as a man made in his image. Back in the very beginning, God made man and, fem man and woman with distinct roles, and in this case, he honors he honors God's covenant and protects, he uses his masculinity to protect a woman made in the image of God. And he uses his masculinity to glorify God. And I want to say that in our culture, we are so backward because very often men will use their masculinity to take from women rather than give protection to women. Masculinity is for the benefit of others, just as much as femininity is for the benefit of others. And so we humble, when we humble ourselves and recognize the uniqueness of our features, of our masculinity or our femininity, we have a place in which we can glorify God and display the wonders of our creation. And Moses is demonstrating in this situation the uniqueness of creation and giving glory to God, even if he doesn't fully understand that he is. He is giving God glory in his actions. And so it's in a place of humility, and we see a contrast developing. I think Moses, when he wrote this in reflection, recognizes what's going on. But in the moment, I'm sure he had no idea and had to reflect upon it later in his life. Verse 20, we also see that he honors the authority in a new realm. Uh, verse 20, um, so the women go and they 
they go and they find him again. In verse 20, it says, uh, and he said to his daughters, where is this Egyptian? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat uh, with me today. Now, again, he, when Moses was in Egypt, he, he tried to use the authority of his position, and it was so foolish. Now, here in Midian, though, Moses applies his masculinity appropriately, and he does so underneath the authority of God, and he protects, and the priest of Midian asserts his own authority over his realm and says, look, girls, you left that guy at the well, that would be an inappropriate way for me to manage my personal authority. I have a responsibility to, to shelter him, to provide a hospitality for him, and he sends the girls back, and Moses humbles himself and submits to the new authority and comes to his tent and honors his authority. And as the story goes, Moses is invited to the home for a meal, and then one thing leads to another, and he's given a daughter to marry. And in this process, there is a humbling of Moses. He, as the prince heir of Pharaoh and Egypt, could have picked anyone. Here, he's allowing God, as you will, to pick someone for him. And Moses, as he dwells in that tent, learns how to lead by humbly tending sheep. It says in verse 21 to 22, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zephora, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He was content to dwell. That's a figurative way of saying, I'm, I'm willing to, to live here and kind of work alongside of you, and I'm going to do what you do. And when we get to chapter 3, we find that Moses is taking the sheep out into the wilderness. He's now shepherding. What a change of position. Moses was content to dwell with the man. His life now longer consisted of his own ambitions. Basically, he gave up the palace, if you will, for God. He never want all of this now. He's now content here working alongside of the, prince, uh, the priest of Midian. Now, it was not a wrong impulse for Moses to want to deliver the Egyptians. It's not wrong. But it had become a, such a controlling desire within his life that it caused him to get into sin. Now he's kind of giving it up and saying, okay, I'm not going to be the master of my own destiny here. I'm going to let God do what He wants to do. And I think that it's really remarkable that as He works alongside of this man, He learns how to be a shepherd. And learning how to be a shepherd is something that can prepare you for life. You can learn a lot by tending sheep because sheep like to go their own way. We are like sheep, and we like to go our own way. Shepherds are needed to lead people who don't want to go in the way that they are best to go. And so what you learn through this process, you learn self-denial. 
instead of exercising and asserting my will, we need to learn to cooperate with God in His plan. We need to learn how to be sheep being led by a shepherd. And some of these things you don't learn until you try to lead sheep. There are many homes in America right now that I believe are filled with sorrow because we don't go along the lines in which God would have us to go. There are many women who are not willing to be led by husbands. And there are many men who are not willing to lead. Men and women at war with one another in their own homes because they're not willing to learn the ways of God. Two of the greatest leaders learned how to shepherd, how to take care of their own homes before they were able to lead others. And two of the greatest shepherds of Israel, do you know who they were? The two greatest shepherds were David. The other one was Moses. But there is actually a third shepherd you know what his name was? His name was Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one whom the sheep hear and they follow. I am the good shepherd, he said, and I know my sheep, and they hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus is the shepherd of shepherds who, like Moses, was a sojourner. He had nowhere to lay his head. Why is it that Moses fails in one realm, but then succeeds in the other? It's because of God's providence, moving him and allowing him to fail, and then making sure that he finds a place where he can display his talents and gifts in a way that's underneath of the authority of God. Moses needed to learn that, that God's Word is irrevocable, and he needed to humble himself underneath of it in order to be able to serve others truly. And I see in this text something for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. There are many shepherds that will let us down, but there is one true good shepherd who teaches us how to follow well, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And following Christ is a difficult path. But in the process of following Him, He shows us how to lead. God is the one who prepares His people for service, and He does this through suffering. We would prefer it another way. We would prefer to have a field of soft grass the whole way. But God allows us to tread the poor decisions of our youth in order to teach us humility and dependence upon Him. We cannot serve others, we cannot lead apart from the Spirit of Christ who is gentle and lowly, and He is the one who will direct our paths. Let's pray.